Well, thank you. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. You'll understand if I already have a bookmark in Exodus chapter 6. I've kind of been in it for a while. All right, uh, beginning with verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just ask you to, by your Holy Spirit, teach us what your word would have us know. I ask you to bless the words that I say, and keep me on the line, not going over or above it. I just ask you to bless this time. And bless what you would have us learn in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 6 is really a pep talk. It's a pep talk to Moses because Moses needs it. All right? This is just following the scene, you remember, that was round one with Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron in chapter 5. They went in to Pharaoh and they asked for, what they asked for was a little bit of respect. All right, may we please go out into the wilderness three days' journey and honor our God. And what they got back from Pharaoh was insulting and demeaning. What they got back was, I don't know the Lord. The Lord, I don't know him, and I won't have to obey him. So the Lord who? Never heard of him. The second thing they got was, um, hold up, my people go. Those people belong to me. They're my property. They do what I say, and I say no. And then the third thing he gave them was this infamous comeback. You know, you guys obviously have too much time on your hands coming in here whining to me about uh, leaving for religious holidays. So I tell you what, to take up the extra time you've got, why don't you get your own straw for those bricks that you're making? You know, they used to have to make these bricks out of straw, and now the government surplus straw isn't going to happen anymore. So that ought to keep you busy for a while. Now get back to work. How you like them apples? So he threw him out of his office. And for 3,500 words collectively, everybody who has ever heard this story has said, what a jerk. You wonder about who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, he was a jerk to begin with. I mean, he thought about this. I wonder how I can make life even more worse for these people. I know. (laughs) I'll make them get their own straw. You know, I've worked for this guy. He was a bully and a liar from the very beginning. His grandfather was the kind of a guy that would throw babies in the river. I mean, you would got to figure that he wouldn't be much better. So you wonder who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh was a, Pharaoh was a jerk from the very beginning. The Lord who? Never heard of him. Well, Lord's going to introduce himself. All right? So chapter 6 begins with God's promise of deliverance. So as I start reading verse 1, I have to do this kind of with the Lord's voice after that meeting. When they come out of there, the Lord goes, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, 
Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Okay, tough guy. All right. Is that how it is? All right. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. You know what, Moses? Nothing that that guy said is the way it's going to happen. All right. He was wrong about everything. And when I'm done with him, not only will he let you out, he will throw you out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out. Have you ever seen, you know, the, the pharaohs thought that they were gods, right? They were delusional. Did you ever see the Avengers? Did you ever see when Hulk had Loki like a rag doll and he's bouncing around? Puny God. That's what God's going to do to Moses in this story. All right. He's given him just enough rope to hang himself with. And for 3,500 words, this Pharaoh is going to go down in the history books as, oh, that Pharaoh, the loser. I mean, he lost the Nile. He lost the sun. He lost his creamy complexion. He lost his firstborn. He lost the army, including all the chariots, not to mention two million slaves that won't be making him any mud bricks with or without straw anytime soon. He lost it all. He lost everything. And he is going to be God's foil through the rest of the story. He's going to be his dupe. He's going to be his straight man. For this purpose, I raised you up to show my power is what God says later on in Exodus chapter 9. That's what's coming. All right, we know the story. But you see, that's how God saw that meeting. That's not at all how Moses saw that meeting. They came out of that meeting, and go back into chapter 5 for a minute. Go up into verse 22. This is after the meeting. Get out of my office. How you like them apples? Make your own, get your own straw. Then Moses turned to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. My, Moses has grown a titanium backbone somewhere along the line here, hasn't he? The whole incident in chapter 5 did not go well as far as Moses was concerned. It was an utter failure as far as he knew. So Moses is having this meltdown. He's going, oh my gosh, oh, I can't believe you sent me in there to do that. Oh man, did you see the look on his face? You know, and now I made slavery worse. How do you make slavery worse? I did it. We got to find our own straw. Where are we going to find straw? It's Egypt. Okay, look at the brown horizon everywhere. Look at all the straw we got out here. So Moses is not seeing it the same way God is seeing it. So God has to take Moses and he has to sit him down and he has to give him this little pep talk. Moses thought it was a complete failure. He thinks he's losing 36 to 0. And so God takes him and he sits him down. Now you've got to remember something about Moses and the Lord in the whole story of Exodus. Moses and the Lord used to talk to each other like a friend. Okay, Exodus 33 tells us that God used to speak to Moses face to face with his own audible voice, just like a friend. And what's that like? Well, Jesus told us in, Exodus, in John chapter 15 that no longer do I call you servants. I call you now friends. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. So what God is about to do to Moses is he's going to let him in on the photo grande. He's going to tell him exactly what the purpose is and what the plan is going to be. All right? First of all, he sits Moses down and he says, look, Moses, let me explain something to you, okay? I'm the Lord. No, really. Look at verse 2. God, God spoke to Moses and he said, I am the Lord. All right? I'm in charge here. Pharaoh is not in charge of any of this. I'm the one that's in charge of here. That's where chapter 6 begins with this plan. 
But before he can get to the plan, God has to do the purpose. There's going to be deliverance. This will be the purpose of deliverance. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. Now, what you have in your Bibles there is probably the Lord in all caps, right? That's not the Lord shouting, all right? That is, that is an English translation of what they call the tetragrammaton. It's the Y-H-W-H, and it's probably pronounced Yahweh, all right? And it's a name that means uh, the Lord, or it, it means I am, all right, and, and what, what the Jews used to do, it was a very holy word. They didn't say it flippantly or out loud like we do. They would say something like uh, Adonai. They would swap it out for a word like Adonai, which means Lord. It means master. Or they would say Hashem, and Hashem means the name. You know, I swear by the name, you know, as the name lives. They would say that to avoid using the name of the Lord casually. You know, Baruch Hashem Adonai is blessed be the name of the Lord. And what they would do, uh, scribes, when they would uh, transcribe uh, uh, scrolls, they would take and get a new pen when they would write this name. I mean, it was a very holy name. And it means, like I said, I am. When Moses said in the, at the burning bush, he said, well, who do I say sent me? And uh, God said, tell them I am what I am sent you. And you have to understand that in the Middle East, you know, your name said something about your character. It said something about what, what you are. And when God says, I am... You kind of maybe wonder to yourself, well, it's an odd name. I mean, isn't everybody M what they am? Well, no. Not if you're a fake false god. Like, for example, an Egyptian god. Like Horus or Ra or Isis. You're not M what you am. You're not M what you am when you're a false god like Zeus or Apollo or Diana or Baal or Chemosh or Ashtaroth. You know, you're... Our God, this God, is the real, live, living God. And what he is about to do in this story is he's about to crack the sky and bust the laws of physics like a pinata, and he's going to do real, live miracles through the rest of the story. First, he's living, true God. And he says now, look in verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord... Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I appeared as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I am, I did not make myself known. So the purpose of these events, what's going to happen in the rest of the story, is God making himself known. This is him revealing himself, to show himself to his people so that they will know him. And more than his people are going to know him from all this story. All right, take in your Bibles and go over to the right into chapter 7. Just a minute. Look into Exodus 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Egyptians are going to know that there is the real live God coming into the world and doing this. I mean, you remember the magicians that were counterfeiting the, the miracles that Aaron and Moses were doing, right? They were able to do that only up to a point. And then after that, they were not able to mimic the miracles anymore. Um, later on in Exodus chapter 8, the magicians tried their secret arts to produce the gnats. They tried the plague of gnats. They tried to reproduce that, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. 
And oh my, what they are saying when they say this is the finger of God. You know that later on in Exodus 31, when the children of Israel got the Ten Commandments on the tablets, it says that those Ten Commandments were carved with the finger of God. Later on in Luke chapter 11, a bunch of Pharisees were accusing Jesus and they were saying, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. And Jesus said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then who do you guys cast him out by? But if I cast them out by the Lord God, then the finger of God is upon you, is what he said. The finger of God is the power of God. And these two uh, magicians, um, Penn and Teller, um, Janice and Jambres, they're, they're like standing there and they're going, you know, they bitten up by gnats and they smell like dead frogs and they got no staff because Aaron's staff ate their staff. And they're like, I really think that this is God. You really ought to let them go. Everybody is convinced except for Pharaoh. He's the one who's got a hardened heart. And you know what? It goes even farther than that. Forty years later, after this all happens, the children of Israel are going into the promised land, and Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to spy out Jericho. Do you remember that story? And a harlot by the name of Rahab hides them. And when the coast is clear, the spies are about to leave, and they say to Rahab, you know, why did you do that? Why did you hide us like that? And she says an amazing thing to them, the reason why she did that. It's found in Joshua chapter 2. You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. But she says, she starts out in verse 10. She's answering the question, why did you do that? She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. She's using the name Yahweh. She's using the word I am in there. Before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then she says something, this amazing thing. This is a Canaanite woman saying this, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This story that's going to happen in, this, in Exodus has domino waves all the way through world history. Right up into today. You know who Rahab was, don't you? She was the mother of Boaz, who was the husband of Ruth. And the two of them had Obed, and the two of them had Jesse, and then they had King David. And David was the whole kings of Judah, and all the way down to the Messiah, all from this Canaanite woman who admitted that the Lord God was God, from the events that are going to happen in, in Exodus. God is doing these things so that he can expose himself and make him known, not just to his people, not just to the Egyptians, but the whole world. So there's a missionary bent about this whole thing. There's an evangelism reason why he's doing this, not to just pick on Egyptians, but because he's making himself known. Now, I know that the word know a lot of times in the Bible is used as a, a euphemism for an intimate knowledge, all right? When, when Abraham knew Sarah, they had Isaac, all right? Jesus will one day say to the goats on his left, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, it implies knowledge means a relationship, all right? And certainly, uh, these people will, there's degrees of no. I mean, you will know when, the, when a, God makes your Nile River blood, all right? You'll know what God did that. These two magicians did. But the thing that will make it special about the children of Israel and how they will know is because they will have a special relationship with him because they will have a covenant with him. All right? This next part I call, he is the covenant-making God. Look at chapter, uh, verse 4. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. What covenant is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the covenant that Abram, he was Abram back in those days, had with God in Genesis chapter 15. Keep your finger in Exodus 6 and go to Genesis chapter 15, all right? Now, there's two kinds of covenants that were in the ancient world, all right? One was called a suzerain covenant. And this was a covenant that was between groups that were not equal. A deity would have it with the people. A ruler would have it with the people. And basically, by and large, it worked like this. It worked like... uh, you know, uh, I will protect you militarily. I will protect you with good crops and everything. And in turn, you will obey me. And if you do not obey me, then you broke the covenant. A suzerain covenant would be kind of like what they had at Mount Sinai with God and the Ten Commandments and the, and the law that he passed down by Moses. But this is not the kind of a covenant that God is talking about in Exodus 6. He's talking about the covenant that they had back in Genesis 15. And the word covenant here really kind of implies a cutting And the kind of a covenant that they would have in those days were between two parties that were equal, all right? And what they would do is they would cut an animal in half. And God said to prepare, give me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, all these animals that he got, and cut them in half. And Abram took them and he cut them in half. And the idea to make this covenant would be that the two parties would walk between the parts of the animal. The idea being that if either one of us breaks this covenant, may this happen to us, all right? So Abram's kind of on board with what's going to happen here. But before they make the covenant, God puts Abram to sleep. He puts him off to the side. And Abram's probably watching this through a dream or a vision. And what happens in the middle of the night after the pieces are cut, Genesis 15, verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is the presence of God. Does this remind you of anything? Fire Cloud, you know, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is the presence of God. And God alone is going through the two pieces. He's not going with Abram. He's making this covenant by himself, swearing by himself, and he's going between the two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, turn back to Exodus 6. Here's the point. God made a promise. God is going to keep that promise. That requires God to take the children of Israel out of Egypt and bring them back to the literal land he promised to Abram. That makes him a covenant-keeping God. Verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. If you want to know what the name of the Lord means, start by knowing that he always keeps his promises. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Titus 1-2. Here's what's going on. God made a covenant, a covenant by himself, swore by himself. Abraham's people would be his, and he would deliver them to the land of promise he promised to Abraham. That was the covenant. The deal and the time is now up, and the promise is to be honored. The iniquity of the Amorites is complete, and the time to judge Egypt has come. The Exodus story is really a rescue story. The people are hostages. They're being held against their will. And God has sent Moses to go in there and deliver his people out, or lead his people out. God will deliver them. So, God has sent Moses. So, God tells Moses to go out there and preach a sermon to the people. 
says, I want you to go out there and I want you to preach to him. Even after that first meeting that he had with Pharaoh, he says, got a sermon for you to go out there and street preach. Go out there and give them what I call the plan of deliverance. This next part is the plan. Moses, go out there and tell them the plan. And here's what you're going to say. Verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Does any of that sound familiar? Have you heard that before? The same kind of message, same kind of sermon? Because it sounds an awful lot like the gospel. I mean, doesn't it? I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I mean, of course you can say, well, it's close. I mean, to be the full gospel, you need to have Jesus dying for your sins resurrecting. True. But I mean, this is the vocabulary. This is the vocabulary that the gospel will use later. The gospel will use the same kind of thing. The shadow and type that's going to be made in this story here is something that the gospel will use again to say the same thing. And trust me, by the way, before this story is over with, these people will be covered by the blood of the lamb. All right. So the stories and the types are starting here with this story. Moses is to go out there and preach this sermon. And the the time of captivity is over. Deliverance has come. That'll preach. And the result of the deliverance, what do you get out of the deliverance? Look at verse 7. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The whole story is going to make the real God known. Known. Remember what started this whole thing. I don't know the Lord. Who is the Lord? I don't know him and I don't have to obey him. This is all designed to make him known. So Moses goes out there and he preaches this great big sermon and he says, deliverance is at hand. Here we are. Get ready to go because the Lord's going to save us all. Mic drop and nobody listens to him. Crickets chirping. Moses spoke thus to the people and they did not listen to Moses. All right. He went out there and preached this great sermon and nobody listened to him. I call this next part the pessimism of deliverance. The message of the good news of deliverance is ignored. They did not listen. Now, before you judge any of these people, you have to remember that they didn't listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. A lot of people don't listen to the good news because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. But just because they didn't listen that time is no reason to give up on them. But Moses is about to because he got a negative reaction. And he doesn't like negative reactions. Moses got this negative reaction and he's, because he still has something to learn. This next part is called the doubt of Moses. So the Lord said to Moses, look at verse 10. Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses goes out there and he preaches that sermon. And after he's done and he bombs, God goes, all right, now go in there and tell Pharaoh to let the people out of the land. And Moses is like, Moses is once again, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? 
for I am a man of uncircumcised lips. Once again, Moses and God are not seeing what happened there as the same way. Moses is seeing this as an utter failure. God is seeing this as we're still on course. We're still on plan. All right. So Moses, even after that pep talk, is not seeing it the same way. And here come the excuses again. The same kind of excuses that he got when he was at the burning bush. They're not listening to me. I'm not your man. All right. I am not the right guy. Send somebody else. Look at verse 12. Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. Nobody is listening to me. The people won't listen to me. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Look, I am not a holy man. All right? I've got baggage. I am nobody to be preaching to anybody. All right? You've got the wrong man. I am bombing down here. Moses is afraid of the reaction to the message. More importantly, he's afraid of the negative reaction to what he's getting, which leads to the big lesson that Moses still has to learn, and it is this. God never holds the messenger responsible for the reaction to the message. God never holds the messenger responsible for the reaction to the message. He only holds all of us responsible for delivering the message the way he said it. And if the reaction is negative, that's not your fault if you said it the way he told you to say it. I mean, that is a message that is all through the Bible. You'll see that all over the place. Jeremiah saw terrible altar call numbers. You know, people didn't listen to him at all. He got thrown into cisterns, into stocks. He got punched in the face. By fundamentalist Christian standards, he was a terrible failure. You know, Isaiah, you remember the story, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, that's the famous one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. You remember that? We've sung that. You know, and so Isaiah sees this beautiful, great vision of God, and he thinks, yeah, this is it. This is the power. And God says, who will go for us? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's back there, yeah, here am I, send me. And God says, all right. Here you go. I want you to go out there and I want you to say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Go out there and preach my message and fail doing it. And Isaiah goes, okay, well, how long, how long do you want me to keep doing that? Preaching and not getting any results from it. And God says, until the end, right up until the end. Until the cities lay waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the people rem- and the Lord removes the people far away. Isaiah is told to go out there and preach and flat out fail because the judgment of God is on these people that they won't listen. God does not hold Moses responsible for the reaction, but Moses thinks he does. He thinks, I am not an eloquent guy. I am not a salesman here. I am not the guy that's good at this. I am not a motivational speaker. And so the reaction must be my fault. Moses wants a positive reaction. Everybody does. What you want is to have things go like a jack chick tract. You know, uh, Jesus loves me. Gosh, tell me more. That's how you want it to go. So when it doesn't go that way, we, we want to get the positive reaction out of people. 
Now, some people don't care. You know, they'll, they'll shove the Bible down their throat. You know, that way they don't have to chew. You know, they'll do whatever they have, and they don't really care about whether the reaction is positive, negative, as long as they put a notch on their Bible. But most of us don't like to be obnoxious and offensive like that. We want to have the positive reaction, though, so we will do something a lot of times that's really, really, really dangerous, and that is we will water down the gospel. We'll make Jesus into a teddy bear. We'll make him into a gooey and squishy and nice and and Santa Claus. You know, we'll make him out to be uh, chicken soup for the soul. You know, because it's got a better success rate, right? I mean, people like that. People like that Jesus. What people don't like is is the Jesus of the Bible. I mean... The Jesus of the Bible is offensive. You know, it talks about sin. It talks about needing to be covered by the blood of the cross. You know, uh, Jesus told us that. If the world hates you, know that it hated me long before it hated you. You know, this is all through the Bible. The preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. Uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God, it says in First John. I mean, this is, this is the way it is. But the world doesn't want that. What the world wants is what Isaiah 30 said, you know, do not prophesy of us what is right. Speak to us of smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So people dress it up. They make it taste better. Make it more palatable. Better success. But when you do that, it loses its power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's power when you say it the way God delivered it. It's a rock that most people stumble over. But for those of us that are saved, it's the cornerstone of our whole lives. You don't, don't fix up that rock. Don't put lipstick on that rock. All right? The way it works is that God takes what you say as he delivered it, and he works on the other person's heart. That's the way he does it. He regenerates the person that you're talking to. And when you start using marketing gimmicks and things like that, you change the voice of the shepherd. It's the voice of the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And when you change the voice then you get something that doesn't attract the sheep. Anything else is the voice of a stranger. It's a fake gospel. It's another gospel. And when you do a fake gospel, you get fake converts. You get people that came in by the wide way and not the narrow way. You get people that are in the feast without a wedding garment on. Raise your hand if you know that analogy I just used. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) It's in the parables. Okay. They, got, they didn't get saved by the gospel. They get saved by, well, one great big long fortune cookie. All right? God takes his message that you say faithfully, and he blesses it. He uses it on the other person, and he hardens or he softens. That's what he does with his word. Jesus talked about it like seed. A sower spread the seed. Some of it fell on good soil. Some of it on rocky soil. Some of it on thorny soil. It was not up to the sower. It was not up to the seed. It had everything to do with the soil that it was get thrown on. Don't try and change the seed. Don't try to make the, the sower different. Use the analogy that Jesus used. You don't sell Jesus. You simply hold him up. You know, when, when Paul came into 
got done with Mars Hill in the book of Acts, the next stop he had was Corinth. And he went into Corinth and he said, I came into Corinth and I resolved that I was going to know nothing else but Christ crucified. That's all I was going to preach. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And my speech and my preaching were not with plausible words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God uses the gospel the way he delivered it. He uses that. The sheep know that voice, and the rest of them reject it. God is the one who saves. God will deliver these people, not Moses. He led them out. So, Chris, so you're saying to me, all right, well, the elect are the elect, and God's going to bring them in anyway, and and, uh, it doesn't matter whether I go out and say anything at all, because, you know, I mean, the sheep are just going to come. No, 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 no. Wait, my Bible's got Romans 10 in it, all right? And Romans 10 says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Right? And the rest of it goes like this. How will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God uses people to deliver people. Yes, he knows his sheep from the foundation of the world. And he has sent you to go out and get them. That's the way God works. God uses people to go get his people. We're divine obstetricians who give birth to our own brothers and sisters. That's how he works. I mean, here's a God that can make a galaxy 10 trillion light years across, okay? Have you ever wondered why he just didn't take these people and Star Trek beam them out of Egypt and then beam them back down to the surface of the planet in the land of Canaan? No, he sent Moses in to lead them out. He delivered them with people. God uses people. That ain't new. Sad, broken people. People like Moses, who was a murderer. People like Peter, who was a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. People like Paul, who was a religious hypocrite. If anything we learn from Exodus, it's that Moses really wasn't good at this job. He really wasn't. But God didn't send a guy good at this job. He sent a guy who he could use and that would glorify him. Blessing somebody who otherwise failed. If it were up to Moses, this never would have happened. Nothing of it. People talking to other people, praying for other people, encouraging one or other people. We are a body. That's how God works. That's how he's always worked. And if you get ignored by what you said, you know what? That's not the end of the story for who you talk to. Because I'm here to tell you another thing about how God works. God sends multiple people after you. He sent multiple people after all of you. Have you ever heard of Evangelism Explosion? Evangelism Explosion was started, I think, in the 60s or the 70s by Dr. D. James Kennedy. And uh, Evangelism Explosion has said that for every Christian, they encountered the gospel an average of 15 times before they finally came to salvation. 15 times. So does that mean that only person, Christian number 15, who led this person to the Lord, gets all the reward and gets all the credit? No. One gets it too. Six gets it also. And believe me, the person said no to number one. The person said no to number six. The way Paul talked about it was, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. You don't save anybody. You never have. 
You are only one in a long line of witnesses. You don't pick who, who, who is worthy or unworthy of hearing it either. You preach to everybody. You say the good news to everybody. And if they reject it today, then you don't know who's God's going to send later after you. That's how it works. The point is, you're not responsible for the reaction that you get. You're responsible to be faithful and say what he told you to say. And what am I supposed to say? Well, say 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am at the top of the list. Or words to that effect. You know what to say. I was blind, but now I see. Every day you always have opportunities all the time. They come all the time. You don't have to sell, you know, close the deal right there every time. You can just be a witness. You can just be a light that shines in the workplace, at school. Yeah, well, I really don't have the gift of evangelism. You know, I took a test. It's in the back of a book. And I don't have the gift of evangelism. You know what I got the gift of? Mercy. That's my gift. So I don't really have to evangelize anybody because that's not really not my gift. You don't get off that way. Moses didn't. The command of God is the next part. Look at verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Gave them a charge. He gave them an order. Moses is coming up with the excuses. I'm not, nobody's listening to me. I'm not the right guy. And God said, get back in there and tell Pharaoh that we're going to to let the people go. God does not allow excuses. Told them to go in there anyway. All of us are witnesses. We can say what we've seen. And Moses is having this panic attack, but he's not, and he thinks he's failing. But he's not failing at all. He's following orders like a soldier. And if that looks like it's failing, just remember that God said, I am the Lord. I will, I will, I will. Does Moses ever learn his lesson? Well, turn to Exodus 33. We'll see if he ever learned his lesson. You like spoilers? Hate spoilers? You know, in Agatha Christie's novel, Murder on the Orient Express, you know who did the murder? All of them did. (laughs) Shut up, man. La, la, la. I was going to read that. No, you weren't going to read that. So this is the incident in Exodus 33 with the golden calf. You remember the golden calf? Moses is up there getting the law from God, and the children of Israel are down there making this golden calf. It looked great. It's made of gold. looks great on the coffee table. You know? And the insidious thing about that golden calf is they weren't saying that that was a whole new pagan god. They were saying that that was the god who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. They were saying that that was the Lord. All right, Because it looks so good. It's a compliment. A bull is a compliment. I mean, it's tough, right? Strong. If you don't think that, then go ahead and be a rodeo clown and step in the ring with one of them sometime. I mean, there you'll get some respect. So the thing was supposed to look good. You know, picture, picture if your husband had, a, had a, a picture of some other woman on his desk at work, and he's telling people that that's his wife. And you come in there and you see that picture, and you go, who's that? Well, that's my wife. Well, I'm your wife, and I don't look anything like that. Yeah, but she looks so much better. She looks great. And it gets me more respect, you know? I mean, if you can imagine what you would feel, think about how God is feeling now. After these guys have made a golden calf, a golden bull, and said that that's you. 
All right? So God is, God is angry, to put it to the least. And he's telling Moses, all right, take them, go to the promised land. My presence will not go with you because I swear if I go with you, I'll kill you all. I'll kill every last one of you. I will consume them on the way, is what he said. And Moses is saying, if you do that, then everything you prove to the world by delivering your people out by a mighty work will be wasted. And God says, I'll send an angel before you, but I'm not going to go with you. My presence will not go with you. And Moses, in verse, 13, er, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know what you, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And, he's, and God says, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And Moses is on a roll, okay? He is chewing God out. And he says, he said to him, if, my presence, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For... Uh, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? If your presence isn't with us, we got nothing. We're nothing. If your presence isn't with me, I got nothing. Moses isn't good at this job. It doesn't matter that he's not good at this job. God is using him. And if his presence isn't there then he's got nothing. And there it is. That's the spot where Moses finally learns the lesson. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God's blessing on what Moses said, the very thing that you say that I will do. If God's not there, you got nothing. What you're hoping for is not to be super evangelist. You're not hoping to be super witness. You're hoping that God will take the words that you say and use them. You're hoping that he will bless them to the person's other heart, other person's heart. And how do you get that? How do you stay there? How do you do that? Well, Jesus said, just abide. Abide. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What you do is you keep this straight all the time. Keep it straight. Just live here. Live here. And he will use you. God knows you. He knows that you are not good at being his messenger. Moses was a murderer. Moses was a failed revolutionary. Moses thought that the way he was going to save his people was by killing an Egyptian guy that was picking on one of his Hebrew brothers. That backfired in his face. He got turned in for that. And the people that he tried to save threw it in his face. The next time we see Moses 40 years later, he's out working for his father-in-law, watching sheep that aren't even his. But God used that guy who was not good at that job. What you are hoping for is that God will show up and bless what you say. God blessed Moses with both positive and negative reactions. God blessed what he said. 
God bless what he did. And things didn't get easier for Moses. Oh, no. Things got really bad. I mean, Moses, Pharaoh said no nine more times to him. People began to whine about his leadership. You know, who died made you king? Even his sister and his brother started, you know, you really should uh, share some of the power because you're not really the guy that's very good at this. I mean, the whole story started out with Moses saying, I'm not the guy who's good for this. And then later on, the people are saying, you know, you're really not good at this. He couldn't delegate. You know, he was afraid of the reactions that people would say, what they were saying behind his back. Moses got a lot of grief after this little pep talk in chapter 6. But you know what? He never again said, find somebody else. Basically, it started out with, you know, if, if, you, if you have any problem with how I'm running things, then go ahead and take it up with that great big fiery pillar of fire behind me because he won't let me quit. I tried. <laughs> and oh my, did things bad happen to the people that talked against, against Moses. Oh, fire and oh, f- the ground opening up and, you know, poison pheasant meat and, you know, uh, leprosy and poisonous snakes biting people, you know. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to send poisonous snakes against people that, you know, you try to witness to. But I am saying that God will back up what you say if it's what his words were. That's the entire point. I mean, Moses was not good at this job. What if I told you that the entire point was that Moses was not good at this job? You are not good at being super evangelist. What if I told you that the point was that you are not super evangelist? We have these treasures and jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. You're not looking to be super evangelist. You're looking to be useful. You're looking to be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You're just hoping to be used. Don't put your own words in there. Use his. The hero of this book is God, not Moses. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the Lord. Thank you that you are the one in charge. We just beg you, Father, to bless the words that we say. We ask you to bless the things that we do. We ask you to help us abide on the vine and that we be watered by you every day. If you will bless the things we do, if you will bless the words we say, then we will stand. We beg you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.